Welcome to Premiere the Play, bringing the theater from our homes to yours. Premiere the Play, new theatrical works from the pen to the page to the podcast. We are back with this week's special bonus episode of Premiere the Play. I'm Rebecca Lynn, and joining me today is Richard Bont, the playwright of Venom. Thanks for being with us today, Richard. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, Richard is a Floridian and native-born New Yorker, but he has also lived half his life in Canada and Western Europe. He has worn many hats, including playwright, novelist, actor, teacher, and linguist. He has advanced degrees from Berkeley, UCLA, and the Sorbonne. At the height of the pandemic, he finished a novel with co-writer James Crew Allen on COVID-19 entitled The Wuhan Tentacles. In 2018, Richard was awarded the Silver Award for Humor by the Florida Authors and Publishers Association. Congrats! It sounds like you've had a very busy and fulfilling career. Well, it's been not bad, really, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so, Richard, we all listened to Venom earlier this week, and it is truly a wild ride. Where did you get the idea for this story? Well, from several different sources. Um, I had been going through psychotherapy in the late 70s in Berkeley, California, with a woman therapist, and in the early 80s with another woman therapist in New York City. What was interesting was that two women suggested I do therapy in the first place. A good friend of mine in Berkeley and my girlfriend at the time when I moved to New York. Psychotherapy was very big in those days, and I remember reading a lot of books about it. I learned that psychotherapy was basically putting a mirror up to one's soul, and all the therapist did was hold the mirror up like, like Herb does in Venom, so you can see yourself clearly. The point is, these women therapists were holding the mirror up to my soul, and I was quite vulnerable. And I projected a lot of psychological stuff onto uh, these therapists and often went into transference with them. I imagine women around me as very controlling, or as Harold Pinter said in his great play, The Homecoming, I decided they were. Unlike what some modern women say today, I never grew up with the idea that women were victims or weak. It was my experience that women were always in charge, especially North American women. On a personal note regarding women, I have two younger twin sisters. I worked alongside women most of my life. My best friends at the time were women, and in some weird way, I resented the fact that I was always with women. I had no brothers. My father died when I was 20, and he was very distant with me in the five years preceding his death. Where were my male friends, I used to ask myself. Anyway, with this second therapist in New York, I was also doing group therapy. And I noticed that every week, like I, like most of my group, never solved our problems. That is, we kept coming in with the same problems week after week, never solving them. I concluded that therapy was interesting, but really a lost cause. This is what gave me the idea of Fred paying big money for never solving his problems. Of course, my therapists were not like Herb at all. They were very kind women and seemed to care for me a lot. And even though I go off against women, especially dominant women, Herb is the bad guy in Venom. Venom, or the file man, as it was originally called, was first a one-act play in 1986-87 when I wrote the first draft. I had written my first play, A Meets B, in one day in 1986 about two antagonistic guys, Mr. A and Mr. B, outside a phone booth in the middle of nowhere. 
At the time I had read Zoo Story by Edward Albee. I won't tell you the plot of May Meets Bee, but all I can say is that it was about dominance, particularly by women, dominance by women. Anyway, I thought I would make the first act of Venom the second act of this one act play, A Meets B. The climax of Venom today where dominatrix Dolores asks Fred if he wants to work for her was going to be the end of that play. But then I changed my mind and kept A Meets B as a separate one act and then added a second act to precede the dominatrix scene so that Venom became a separate two act play. The point is the two plays were very linked to my mind as absurd psychotherapy pieces. How fascinating. So you've already hit on a couple things like gender and dominance, but what overall do you feel is the main theme of this play? Uh, just basically dominance and man's inhumanity towards man to maintain that dominance. Uh, there are many motifs in this play, like control, jealousy, one-upmanship, fear, odious comparisons, humiliation, transference, guilt, projection, weakness, but the main theme is dominance. Now, as a writer who writes in many different mediums, novels, short stories, films, etc., why did you feel that this story needed to be told as a stage play? Well, I guess why even describe psychotherapy in prose when you can go into a therapist's cabinet and witness psychotherapy firsthand? Only on stage or in film can you do this. And I think stage is an even better medium than film. At the time, my head was bursting with psychological venom and it was all in dialogue. I wanted to release all the crap that people had dumped on me into this play. I was an actor going to plays and in the early 1980s, I lived outside London and went to the theater a lot. When I moved back to the States, I also went to the theater in New York and I read a lot of plays. Venom was my second play that I wrote. And at that time I hadn't written anything else in any other medium except the one act play, A Meets B. I've done all my writing in other mediums since that time, but not at that time. They say in writing that it is important to show, not tell. A play is a show by its very definition. I think Venom shows a lot, and even as a radio play, especially with all the great sound effects you guys put in there, like the toilet flushing, the gun firing, the bouncing balls, etc. Yeah, it's interesting. As you were talking, I was thinking back on our first conversation we had about Venom before we started rehearsals. And you mentioned at that time that the play was heavily influenced by Pinter and Kafka. How so? Well, I suppose we could also add Beckett, Alby, and Ionesco into that mix. Let's start with Kafka. All of Kafka's stories are dreams. They often start with a crazy premise. And then there's a logical uh, process that ensues. A guy finds himself transformed into a beetle at the start of the metamorphosis. And he, step by step, must figure out what to do. He tries to talk, but his voice is a squeak. Uh, he tries to move, but he falls out of bed on a shell and tries to write himself. He tries to communicate with people, but there is no hope. That's the important thing, no hope. And he finally just disintegrates and is swept up in the garbage. Sort of a horrible end, I guess, but that's how it is. In the trial, Mr. K, I guess that's Mr. Kafka, right? Mr. K has been accused of something he didn't do, but what can he do about it? What, what can he do? He tries to go through a door, but there is a gatekeeper who won't let him through. The legal accusations mount up and he has to defend himself and so on. The important thing is Mr. K never achieves his goal. In Venom, Fred is an obscure archivist or file man, but he wants to become a successful psychotherapist like Herb. Week after week, 
Fred pays an obscene amount of money only to never succeed. After 10 years of abusive psychotherapy, Fred discovers Herb is a phony and puts the hammer down on him. Marcy and Edward are also hoodwinked by Herb's magnetism and are destined to never solve their problems until Fred, imitating Herb, puts the hammer down on them. Now, how about Harold Pinter? In the final act of The Caretaker by Pinter, the tramp never makes it down to Sidcup, Kent, in the southeast of England. And Pinter was heavily influenced by Beckett. Remember that the tramps and Beckett's waiting for Godot never meet Godot. Pinter influenced me technically more than the other authors because of his speech rhythms. If you notice in Venom, there are several places where the dialogue builds to a climax. In the first act, in the initial Herb Marcy and Herb Edward encounters. Then there's the Herb Fred shakedown. Then in act two, the witch story, the long psychodrama, and even the final Dolores Fred shakedown, where we think Fred is going to be emasculated or killed, but we find out in the last line that Dolores has been the woman in charge since the beginning. I imitated Pinter in using a series of menacing questions to build to a climax. In The Birthday Party by Pinter, the two intruders, Goldberg and McCann, shake the birthday boy down in, the, in a mounting and menacing series of questions. Maybe there's a name for this, but I call this technique the build. In The Caretaker by Pinter, Mick, one of the brothers, goes into a long story about his dream house, like the witch story in my play, to confuse and needle the intrusive tramp. And again, the build, and I'm, and here it is again, and I make use of this technique a lot. Yeah. Okay. So you've mentioned already the sound effects of the toilet. And as we've heard, the toilet plays a very prominent role throughout the story. So it's clearly symbolic, but regardless of our personal interpretations of that, why did you choose to use a toilet specifically? And how do you feel it functions in the story? The toilet is the place we all visit several times a day and where we release our waste material. I've heard that when we want to bring somebody down to size, like say a king or queen or some famous person, we imagine that person sitting on the toilet. In other words, we're all the same person when we do our business. Herb needs to be brought down to size. Uh, through psychotherapy and psychodrama, Marcy, Edward and Fred are also brought down to size. My 19th century English grandfather used to refer to his bowels as his, quote, back passage. The toilet also applies to filing. Remember, I originally called Venom the file man because filing is boring, crappy work, a bureaucratic work. Even the new file cabinets are a form of toilet for the patient's crappy files, according to Herb. And then, of course, there's the Bible or altar, uh, which is the, in the form of the 18-roll package of toilet paper that collects fecal matter. Herb is symbolically wrapped in toilet paper, and at the end, it is Herb's head and abusive mouth that is wrapped up. So all the terms I use have something to do with the toilet, and ridding oneself of unneeded waste material. Take, for example, the big one. The big one is the final tsunami, the final flush, the huge piece of fecal matter that Herb is, the final flushing of the system, the popping of the abscess. Our psychological garbage, all our hangups, our projections, our hypocrisy, groupthink, transferences, all that, is like fecal matter that constipates the soul and needs to be excreted. And we don't spend enough time on the john getting rid of our hangups. We evade and avoid. We don't change. And we're often stuck in the same rut as we go through life. Hmm. Yeah, that's a powerful analogy right there for sure. 
Now, you've already mentioned the witch story a little bit. And at one point in our early conversations, you told me that the story about the Italian witch in Act 2 is a story you actually heard in Italy. Can you tell us about the original story? And how do you feel it fit within Fred's need to control the narrative at this point in the play? Well, that's a good question. And the story about the Italian witch comes from a joke uh, played on my Sardinian wife. Uh, Sardinia's big island in the middle of the Mediterranean between Corsica and Sicily. Some people don't know that, but anyway, she's from there. And uh, uh, it was then she played this joke on me when we first met in 1986. Uh, it's like getting close to somebody and then tickling them by surprise, or like the little piggy story that parents tell their children when they count their piggies or toes and then they tickle them. You know, we, we were all the way home and all of that. Anyway, my wife told me this witch's story very seriously, wants to reel me in, and then started barking at me at the climax, just like in the play. And she did it so well that I jumped in fright. By the way, I hope you appreciated the King Giancarlo Fanculo, the Sardinia name. Why Fanculo in Italian means, go screw yourself. I was just having a little fun. Um, you're very right about Fred's need to control the narrative. At this point in the play, Fred has usurped power from Herb. He's lied about where Herb is. He's talked about the file cabinets and the toilet. And his story, his story is starting to sound suspicious, especially to Edward. Fred doesn't want either Edward or Marcy to bolt at this point. He wants them to stay there. Fred needs them for the psychodrama to show how corrupt Herb is and how they've been had, and especially what a great psychotherapist Fred is. Fred needs them for his well-being and his ego. So this story distracts and traps and confirms Fred's suspicions about Edward, who goes for Fred's gun right at this point. Wow, that is so fascinating. Well, Richard, thank you so much for joining us and giving us greater insight into Venom. It has been a true pleasure. Well, thank you very much. Is there anything you want to ask Richard? Hit us up on Facebook or Instagram and let us know. And don't forget our goal of 2,000 listens by the end of this season. I personally challenged you last week to share the podcast with two friends. And if you haven't done it yet, today is the day. And stay tuned for another brand new play coming next week. You've been listening to Premiere the Play, featuring new plays from around the world. Produced by Dean Productions, a 501c3 nonprofit. Like what you hear? Visit our website for past episodes and to make a tax-deductible donation.